One of our favorite things to do as a family when our children were growing up is to go camping. One of the biggest challenges was putting together that big tent. And my wife was the brains of the affair. She knew how to put the poles together, and it was an old-fashioned cabin tent. But we would spend uh, time outdoors enjoying God's creation and uh, look forward to our annual camping trip. Well, God loves to camp, too. He proved that in the tabernacle. He said to David when David wanted to build a permanent house, I've not complained about living and traveling with you in a, in a tent. I like my cozy camping situation. My goal tonight is to motivate you to diligently search for and meditate on the scripture treasures hidden in the tabernacle and the encampment of Israel there in the wilderness. Direct your attention to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5b. Now we'll be reading other portions of scripture, but in the apostles' argument here, the preacher has brought them to the point of realizing that we have a great and sympathetic high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There's much to study and to think about that uh, the, the uh, writer to the Hebrews is, is troubled by because they, they were at a level of needing milk and not the solid meat. In chapter 8 and 9, we, we see this high priest and his ministry in the earthly and heavenly sanctuaries. Jesus, not being of the Levitical tribe, was not authorized to minister in the earthly tabernacle or the temple of his day. He wouldn't have served as a priest. But the argument here is that he is a priest, a priestly king after the order of Melchizedek, and that gives him the right and the authority to minister in the real tabernacle without, made without hands, the heavenly sanctuary. When he brought his blood into the Holy of Holies, he entered into the perfect heavenly sanctuary and is there as our mediator and intercessor. Hebrews 9, I'll read verses 1 through 5, but we're going to uh, think about some implications from verse 5, select section B. Then indeed the first covenant had ordinances for divine services and an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was made. In the first part of the tabernacle called the holy place were the candlestick, the table, and the showbread. Behind the second veil was the second part of the tabernacle called the most holy place, which contained the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid with gold containing the golden pot holding the manna. Aaron's rod that budded in the tab tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Now he says this, concerning these things we cannot now speak in detail. He's writing to them what he calls later at the end of the, of the letter a brief exhortation, a brief letter. He's writing it with a few words. I read this aloud one time and time to myself. It takes about 40 minutes. And so if it was read in, this, in, the, in the worship of God's people, it would be a, a good lengthy sermon of 40 minutes. 
And you can see why he would say, we don't have time to go into great detail about the tabernacle. Just note this, that the Holy Spirit was signifying, in verse 8, through this, that the way into the most holy place was not yet revealed because the first part of the tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration, a parable for the present time, showing that the gifts and sacrifices offered could not perfect the conscience of those who worshipped, since they are concerned only with foods and drinks, ceremonial cleansing, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. He goes on to speak of Christ as high priest of the good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies so that the flesh is purified, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And we ought to think a little bit about the context and about the fact that these early believers, many of them, most of them probably here in this context, were Jews who had converted to Christ, who had seen Jesus as the promised Messiah and embraced him and made profession of faith in him, who are under persecution now and being tempted to go back to their old, old kinsmen and their old rituals and way of worship in the temple. The writer to the Hebrews uses the tabernacle in his theological argument, not the temple that they would be worshiping at. But the same principles apply. It's important that they understand and that you and I understand that Christ is far superior to the angels and to the priests and to the sacrifices. His sacrifice uh, was foreshadowed by all those rituals. Christ... Um, is greater than all the angels in the, in the first chapter is spent arguing and demonstrating this by seven testimonies from the Old Testament. The Jews believed that the angels mediated the law at Mount Sinai and they revered the angels. And Paul in Galatians even speaks about that. They ministered the law. It was a part of their, their heritage and their, their theology. And in order to disabuse them of this notion that the old rituals of the old covenant were uh, as glorious and impressive as they were. They were nothing compared to the glory of Christ. I don't have time to, to uh, survey the flow of argument this evening, but just to point you to this context, in Hebrews 13, verse 22, he says, I implore you, brothers, to heed this word of exhortation for I have written to you briefly in few words in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 that we read and in Hebrews 8 through 10 we see this beautiful portrait of Jesus as, a, as a, our high priest. He's not only uh, the high priest but he's also the sacrifice. In Hebrews 9, the uh, verse 5, section B causes me to begin thinking about some of the implications and inferences here. 
if this writer to the Hebrews said, we don't have time to get into all the details, and literally in the Greek, it's, it's all the portions and parts. That's why I titled the sermon, uh, Preaching, or rather, Consider the Tabernacle in its Particulars. If he could point to what briefly he sketched and say that the Holy Spirit is showing us something important here, that the way is not yet open, that Christ would, through his death and resurrection, would open up a new and living way into the presence of God, that it's legitimate for us to spend time meditating on other particulars, looking at the details of the tabernacle. If you were here at the beginning before the service, the children were gathered around, we were talking about all sorts of details here that would take uh, a series of sermons, weeks and weeks, to, to cover in great detail. But I just draw this inference from Hebrews 9, 5b. It's legitimate for us to consider the details of the Old Testament tabernacle. In verse 8, if the Holy Spirit was signifying, showing, making clear certain things here, this one particular thought that the way into the presence of God had not yet been opened, why go back to that old ritual when Christ has fulfilled it all and opened up a new and living way? If the Holy Spirit is showing us something important there, he sure, surely is showing us multitudes of details about God and our relationship to him and God's purposes and our mission in this world. In verse 9, he says, it's an illustration. He uses the word parable. It's a, a comparison. The kingdom of God, the Christian life, fellowship with God is like what we see in the Old Testament tabernacle. And so therefore, it's legitimate for us to spend time thinking about this and for me to urge you, dear brothers and sisters, to diligently search for and meditate on these scripture te treasures in order to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if in faith you carefully and prayerfully consider tabernacle details, the Holy Spirit will show you wonderful and glorious truths about Jesus, about worship, and about his church, and I suppose a multitude of other things that I haven't even begun to think about. I can only briefly, in outline form, think through these things. I've been fascinated with the tabernacle for most of my life, and this particular model was a project in my uh, Christian school Bible class. I would say they were middle schoolers, and I've got a picture here of the group of the children who helped me put together this model. We had an adventure and a wonderful learning experience together. So what are some of the things that this tabernacle shows us or illustrates for us about Jesus? I want to be careful not to overwhelm you with detail, and I tend to be a kind of scatterbrain, so I, I forget sometimes just uh, how tedious this can be. But in the ancient world, the Assyrian armies, the Roman armies, the Babylonian armies would go out on campaign and the king who went out to battle with them would encamp in the midst of the army on campaign. This is clearly the Holy Spirit showing us something about the fact that Jesus is 
a great king. And he is with us in battle. And while we're not conquering Canaan like the Israelites, that just foreshadowed our greater mission that we'll look at, look at later under the heading of his church. But God expected the Israelites, this rabble of undisciplined slaves set free, to learn how to be a disciplined army. And one reason he allowed them to spend so long in the wilderness was to, to uh, learn the disciplines of military life. Now, of course, the men of 20 years of age and older were the ones numbered as soldiers, and that was about 600,000 men. So we know that there were probably 2 million people possibly camping together in this wilderness. What an overwhelming task for Moses to organize this. And God gave them specific directions on how to camp and where to pitch the tent and how to do it and gave the Levites their special assignments for pitching the tent and pulling up stakes when the glory cloud indicated it was time to move on. But just remember this, that the imagery of Christ our King ultimately revealed in Revelation of a conquering king going forth, conquering and to conquer, riding his horse into battle. Jesus said in the Great Commission that we were to go into all the world and preach the gospel and disciple the nations and he would be with us. His presence is with us. It's an encouragement to know that he's camped in our midst. We are the temple of God. We see in Peter and in Corinthians that, that we are the temple of God. We're to be holy people were to be uh, a sanctuary where God delights to dwell. We're a spiritual house being built up uh, for worship. In John 1, 14 and verse 29, the disciple most intimate with Jesus who leaned against his shoulder and could, I fancy, hear his heartbeat. He handled him, he knew him in the flesh. He said in John 1:14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. The glory is the only son of the father full of grace and truth. Hearkening to this tabernacle, Jesus in his human flesh dwelt among us, camped out on this earth with us. Verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So not only is Jesus a king who has called us to be his armies to uh, proclaim the gospel, to disciple the nations, he is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As the Old Testament worshipers approached the tabernacle and sometimes the family would be allowed to come and have a fellowship sacrifice where they would gather together there in the outer court. And the father, I fancy, would put his hands on the head of the lamb and confess his sins, symbolically transferring his guilt to that innocent, blameless lamb, that spotless lamb. And the priests would take that lamb and sacrifice it and prepare a meal for the family in the presence of God. The... Um, book of Leviticus tells us of seven kinds of sacrifices 
sin offerings and whole burnt offerings and fellowship offerings and transgression offerings and offerings for restitution. All of these things going on constantly as a, as a picture of God's work of reconciliation for he was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. But we also see in this, in this epistle, you see in the scriptures in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 that Jesus is a priest. Not a Levitical priest, but a priest after the order of Melchizedek. The argument in Hebrews flows along those lines in chapter 7. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. For such a high priest was fitting for us, for he is holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and is higher from the hev- than the heavens. Unlike those high priests, he does not need to offer daily sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For he did this once for all, when he offered up himself, for the law appoints men who are weak as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son who is made perfect forever. And then he goes on to do what I think good preachers ought to do. I ought to do more of it. Now this is the main point of the things that we're saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and the true tabernacle, which the Lord, not man, set up. God gave specific instructions to Moses about this model that it would be a shadow, a type of the heavenly sanctuary. And he was given strict orders to follow every detail carefully. And you could study that in Exodus and in Leviticus and in Numbers. But that brings us then to things that the Holy Spirit shows us about worship. One of the most startling things about this is that the... the uh, tabernacle is in a holy space and I have a handout if you're interested at all I'll leave it up here you're welcome to take it take it and use it as a coloring page if they want but the tabernacle is 100 cubits long 75 rather 50 cubits wide that's the the uh, outer court I measured my cubit from my elbow to the tip of my middle finger, and it's 18 inches, lo and behold. And 100 cubits is about 150 feet. 50 cubits is 75 feet. The tabernacle with its outer court could fit into half of a football field. Think 50-yard line and goal line. It could fit in that space. It's fun to step off the measurements, and when I preached about this in my pastorate in Minneola, Kansas, we happened to have a parking lot that was pretty close to the dimensions of the outer court of the tabernacle. But the striking thing is that there's this, this barrier, and among the Levitical duties was to serve, they were to serve as security officers. They had authority with their sword to cut down anyone who came in unauthorized into the presence of God. They were security police. They were the choir. They would sing praises to God. They were strong, able-bodied men who helped pitch the tent 
and pull up stakes and transport all of the furniture. The Levitical families were divided into the families of the Merarites, the Gershonites, and the Kohathites. The Merarites had the duties of putting into the wagons the um, framework. The Gershonites had the hangings, the fabric, and the Kohathites transported the holy articles of the tabernacle. And this was the ritual. Every time the, the glory cloud lifted, indicating that it was time to pull up stakes and move on in their pilgrimage, they would all go to work. Everybody knew their assignment and in a disciplined and, ordin, or, uh, disciplined and orderly way, they would accomplish this. I, I meant to bring out when we were talking about the army, and I will do that under the church, but their encampment order was significant. They camped tribe by tribe around the tabernacle in the way that they were assigned to camp. And we'll get to that later. The handout has a picture of the high priest and his garments and a little work page. But one thing I want you to notice is that the priest representing Christ has the tribes of Israel on his heart and on his shoulders. Jesus says, your names are inscribed on the palms of my hand. And like the Old Testament high priest, you're on my shoulders. You're on my heart. And I pray for you. Jesus in heaven ever lives to intercede for us. He knows each of you by name. He cares about you. He yearns for you to walk closely with him. Children, Jesus loves the little children and says, suffer the children to come to me. Make it your goal to walk with Jesus, to know him, to trust in him to take away your sins. For as John the Baptist said in thinking about these little lambs that were slaughtered, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Levites were also husky men who helped with the sacrifices. They assisted the priests in butchering these animals and and uh, all of the things that went along with these rituals. And I said uh, the Merarites and the Gershonites and the Kohathites, the tabernacle was always pinched, fa pitched facing east. And so on the north, the Merarites would camp. And on the west, the Gershonites would camp, camp. We know that in the numbers, in the census, that... Uh, each of these tribes were numbered, and we, we can uh, set aside the exact numbers at the moment, but they were the ones who camped closest to the tabernacle, and they were responsible for the holy articles and the, and the fabric and the framework of the tabernacle. And as I said, the, tab the, the lips were authorized with their swords to cut down anyone who would trespass without you had to come into the presence of God cleansed, ceremonially, uh, ritually cleansed. Sometimes when I was growing up and I'd been outside playing with my friends and got all dirty, my mom would make me take a bath. If you want to come sit at my table, you're going to be clean and washed up, washed behind your ears, put on some clean clothes, and we'll sit down and, and enjoy a meal together. And that's in a sense, if not to be trivial, God's inviting us into his palace to feast with him at his table 
And that's what we do whenever we worship God on the Lord's Day. Whenever we have the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we're sitting at the Lord's table. And he's called us to be holy and clean. We're not washed and cleansed by water or by uh, rituals prescribed to the Old Testament believers. We are washed and cleansed by the blood of Christ. We can only come into his presence through the new and living way he has opened in his sacrifice. We have intimate communion with God. It's his house. And I've cast about in my thinking about how this illustrates the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Obviously, we're coming into the Father's house and Jesus, our priest, and our sacrifice opens the way for us to that fellowship. And perhaps the Holy Spirit is symbolized in some way that I'm not aware of, but perhaps the glory cloud itself, the Shekinah cloud, is a representation of the triune God himself, the glory of God. We've beheld the glory of Christ in the gospel and in his life. And he is the uh, glory of God. Listen to what the uh, writer says in the very first verses of Hebrews. God, who at various times and in diverse ways spoke long ago to the fathers, through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the world. He is the brightness of his glory, the express image of himself, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He was made so much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. On the mountain of transfiguration, Peter and James and John saw Jesus transfigured amazingly and wonderfully. His garments were white, whiter than any launderer could get them. Jesus is the brightness of his glory, the express image of the triune God. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. One last thing about worship here that uh, I want to just highlight is that through Christ, as we saw this morning in the, in the sacrament of Lord's Supper, Christ has sealed a new covenant in his blood. The old covenant is, has served its purpose. It's void and uh, set aside the, the covenant that was sealed in the blood of bulls and goats at Mount Sinai is a, is a covenant that foreshadowed a greater and more glorious covenant. And we're living in that new covenant. We worship on the basis of that new covenant sealed in his blood. Our worship is a spiritual worship, and we are the temple of God. We are the tabernacle of God. God delights to dwell in us, in our midst, and in our presence. We come to worship in order to behold the glory of God. One of the things that um, we contemplate as we look at the tabernacle that we sang in Psalm, uh, one of the Psalms this evening, we sing, we contemplate his love. As we look at all this, we see a wonderful display of his love shown to us in redeeming us as his people and leading us through the wilderness of this life, engaging in battle, conquering our hearts and leading us into victory and battle uh, in the spiritual warfare in which we're engaged. Read Ephesians chapter 6. 
and be stirred by that. Another thing that we do is, um, as we sang in Psalm 84a, how lovely, Lord of hosts, to me, the tabernacles of your grace. We come here, we look at this, we see God's grace writ large. It's through Christ and the grace of God that we have been reconciled to the Father. Another psalm that uh, is prominent is Psalm 73, where um, the um, psalmist Asaph complains about the wicked and their, uh, their prosperity. And he says, I almost stumbled until I went into the sanctuary and began to understand their end. We see the wrath of God displayed in the fires that consumed the lambs and the rams and the bulls. The wrath of God. There but for the grace of God go I. I, by virtue of my union with Christ and his sacrifice and priestly ministry, am spared that consuming wrath of God. Well, what does this show us about his church? As I said, it teaches us that we are to be a disciplined army. One of the things that uh, Presbyterians like to remind others of is that we uh, seek to follow good order, and Paul was pleased to see that in the lives of Christians. I wondered about the best way to explain this. One of the things that you should do in this project is learn the birth order of Jacob's sons. And we won't go into that tonight. We don't have time to go into that detail. But when Joseph seated the brothers around his table, they were amazed that he knew their birth order. And there's an encampment order. And there are other uh, um, insights that we could bring out. But the encampment order is instructive. Each tribe, tribe by tribe, camped around the tabernacle to the east, um, if my memory doesn't fail me, we had the tribe of, of uh, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Now, the way I remember that, the memory device that I use is the J-I-Z reminds me of Jesus and the, li- the lion of the tribe of Judah. Salvation comes from the east. Jesus will return on the clouds. Jesus is coming. The tribes of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The tribal symbol of Judah, we know, was the lion. Jesus is the lion of Judah. And I'll hint at this briefly later, but uh, Leo, the constellation, reminds us of Jesus, the lion. To the south, there's a rose garden, R-S-G, Reuben, Simeon and Gad camped to the south. To the east, we have Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. Joseph and Benjamin were sons of Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel. And in blessing Joseph, he was given a double portion. And so his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, formed tribes of Israel. To the north, to the north, we have Dan, D-A-N, the tribe of Dan and Asher and Naphtali. And the numbers in the census of the men 20 years of age and older who were of military fighting age were counted, and it was over 600,000 men. So we know that 
easily there were close to two million people camping around this tabernacle in the wilderness throughout their earthly pilgrimage to the land of Canaan. For 40 years, they learned the disciplines, and God wants us to be an army, good and disciplined soldiers of Christ. We, we like to call the church militant here on earth, uh, a church militant because we are engaged in the con- conquest of the world through the preaching of the gospel. But there is a day coming when we will be known as the church triumphant in heaven. It teaches us not only that we're to be a disciplined army, but we're, it teaches us our mission. We are to disciple the nations. We are to be mindful of God's mission. One of the resources that I've enjoyed recently is a popularized book of of G.K. Beale. He wrote a a more technical and very fat theological treatise that I haven't read yet, but it's about the temple and God's mission and our mission in the world. This little book called God Dwells Among Us, a biblical theology of the temple, is just stirring my soul as I read it. And I just want to uh, uh, share one little insight He says, in military combat, a mission's objectives are articulated through commander's intent. The U.S. US Army has realized that battle plans often become useless 10 minutes into the battle because the enemy did not follow the plan. When the opposing force threw off the script, troops and officers on the ground became paralyzed about what to do next. The commander's intent addresses the problem by distilling the entire battle plan into a simple statement that would give soldiers the freedom and flexibility to improvise without getting off track. This directive helps soldiers adjust fluidly to changing conditions on the battlefield without losing sight of the objective. Like soldiers on the field, Christians must know their commander's intent in order to fulfill our commander's intent in the changing and challenging situations of our lives, we must take time to form a compelling biblical picture of it. And of course, Jesus, as our commander, as our general, sends us into the world in the Great Commission to, to pre- preach the gospel and disciple the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the, of the Holy Spirit. But G.K. Beale and this Mitchell Kim trace this simple battle plan from Eden through the tabernacle and the temple and the pictures in Ezekiel and in Revelation of this glorious temple and this mission of God, God even gave Adam and Eve this assignment to spread his kingdom throughout the world. But they failed, they sinned, they disobeyed God, and it was spoiled. Jesus, the second Adam, has been leading us into spiritual conquest. And the glory of the Lord, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the big picture. That's the burden of all of Scripture, that God's glory would fill the earth. And you and I have a part to play in displaying that glory. Let your light so shine before men that when they see your good works, they will glorify your Father in heaven. Peter gives a principle of evangelism in 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 17. He says, keep your behavior beautiful, morally excellent, so that the Gentiles 
in a day of visitation when the Holy Spirit brings conviction upon them will be drawn to Christ by your beautiful reflection of the glory of Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 18, Paul says something that has amazed me and caused me to think over the years. And it's tied into this tabernacle and the way the Israelites camped about that tabernacle. Philippians 2, 12 to 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but so much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For God is the one who working in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and disputing. The Israelites in the wilderness were known for complaining about everything from this manna that they tried to, to stomach for days, longing for quail. God's wrath consumed them. And the seriousness of murmuring and complaining is something that, that we need to take stock in. My wife tells a story of Bible study around Joe Copeland's table. Joe and Edie Copeland were very influential in our lives. And they were studying some passage in Scripture, and Joe, the elder of the congregation, was expounding on this. And, and Gay said, wait a minute, are you telling me that complaining is a sin? Murmuring is a sin? And with a twinkle in an eye, with a twinkle in his eye, he looked at her and said, yes. That has, has uh, stuck with my wife through the years. Paul says, do all things, not like the Israelites, but all things without murmuring and disputing, that you may be blameless and harmless, sons of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine as lights in the world. One translation, translation has it, lights in the universe, stars in the universe. Do you remember when Abram was wondering and doubting, maybe struggling, wondering how God could make him a multitude when he was an old man, Sarah was an old woman, and they didn't have a child? He said, Abram, come out here, and I want you to look at the stars. Cipher the stars if you can. Count them if you can. And children, I remember trying to count the stars as a youngster. But I think God was saying to, to, to Abram, you know, so should your descendants be. You'll be a multitude too great to number. But I think he was telling him something. Look at the constellations. Look at the stars and how they speak of the glory of God. And, and see if you can understand some deep spiritual truths here. The Israelites camped about the tabernacle reflected the stars, the constellations of what we call the zodiac. Leo the lion, Virgo the virgin, and so forth. And I'm not going to go into all that detail. That would just make me dizzy and confuse the issue. But I believe that there's so much to learn from the details, the parts and the portions of the tabernacle that we can spend a lifetime and I challenge you again, if in faith you carefully and prayerfully consider tabernacle details, the Holy Spirit will show you wonderful and glorious truths about Jesus, worship, and his church, 
and a whole lot more. So, beloved, diligently search for and meditate on these scripture treasures in order to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us the tabernacle as a parable, as an illustration, a comparison. We thank you, Holy, Holy Spirit, that you're showing us wonderful truths here. Help us to be careful not to uh, read too much into these things, but help us to grow in our knowledge of God and in fellowship with you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.